0: Amen. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. You can go ahead and take your seats. And uh, let me invite you to get your Bibles out, and you can start making your way to the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, now, as you're making your way to the book of 2 Corinthians, let me just say a couple of things here at the outset. First of all, it is so good uh, to be back with you all, back in the pulpit. Uh, I'm excited to be back I guess we'll determine whether or not you're excited that I'm back at the end of the message, not at the beginning of the message. Uh, but in saying that, I think uh, it, it's, it's worth noting. Uh, I, I want to publicly acknowledge just my uh, gratitude uh, and thanks to the different men who filled the pulpit in my extended absence. Uh, and so Pastor Brian, Pastor Clint, Chris Risk, and Eric Anderson, we are super thankful. We would do well to thank them. Yeah, we can do that. <clears throat> And uh, loved ones, if you have not, if you have not personally expressed your gratitude to those brothers, uh, I would, uh, I would implore you to do so. Uh, preaching is a heavy, daunting weight and a task. Uh, this morning, uh, we begin in uh, the beginning of 2 Corinthians, a book that we're going to spend the next four months uh, making our way through. So it will be Christmas time, uh, Lord willing, by the time that we are at the end of this book. Uh, a couple of things, though, before we get to the passage itself, that I want to just step back this morning, give us a little bit of an overview of, of the book as a whole that will help to frame our time over these next uh, handful of months. And Pastor Brian mentioned that, that insert in your bulletin um, that you can be reading ahead. Uh, here's something that I'll just state. I want to be really clear about this. We fully expect you to come to church having read the text that we're going to preach on. That's why we put that in your hands. Uh, we think there's great value in that. Uh, we encourage you uh, to do that, and we want you to be noble Bereans. So if I or anyone else is up here saying something that's not in the text, you would know that because you've spent time in the text. So read ahead, uh, and as you're reading ahead, you're probably going to notice a couple things with respect to the book of 1 Corinthians. First of all, Paul had, had a, a deep relationship with the Corinthian church. You can read about how he was introduced to the Corinthian church back in Acts 18, uh, where he ended up spending a year and a half with them uh, before eventually moving on. There were subsequent visits, uh, multiple letters. We know of at least two, although most scholars and commentators believe there may be three, even four letters. Only two that have found their way into uh, the canon. Uh, But we want to ask ourselves why. Why this letter? Why? what's the occasion? What's the purpose? Why is Paul writing this to this church at this time? And and there's a variety of of different items that will uh, emerge over the next four months in this book, but there's really two primary purposes as to why this letter is being written. The first is that in spite of Paul's deep love and investment in the Corinthian church, that many in the church had rejected Paul for other spiritual leaders who Paul will sarcastically dub super apostles, which, by the way, we should love every time the Bible employs sarcasm. Um, I love sarcasm. I'm convinced it's my spiritual gift. uh, So I always love when I see it in the Scriptures. But that's one of the things that is going on, and he's working to reconcile himself to the church and the church back to himself. And that is happening in conjunction with this second main purpose in the book, which there is a failure amongst the Corinthian believers to to really understand and and to, to operate in a manner, in a way where they are living out true Christian living. See, the people in Corinth wrongly assumed that their faith in Jesus was going to bring them status and opportunity. And it was going to remove any kind of hardship or difficulty from them, which if you're hearing that, you're like, well, I thought you're talking about the Corinthian church, not the American church. Yeah, there's there, a lot of carryover in that. And what Paul is wanting to exhort them to is he's saying, no, no, this is what it is to follow Jesus. There is going to be suffering. There is going to be difficulty. There is going to be affliction. They, what they see in Paul, they want nothing to do with for themselves. And yet Paul's saying, no, this is exactly what it is to follow Christ." And so, so Paul, in writing, he's going to defend his ministry. He, he's going to call the church to reconciliation with himself, all while encouraging the Corinthian believers to live as the new creation believers that God intends them to be. In fact, as you think about Paul's exhortation, this, this maybe is a, a succinct way of saying it. I love what one scholar wrote. He, he referred to Paul's exhortation, and he, he classified it this way. He said that it is cruciform living or cross-shaped living. Wouldn't you love that, if that's how people characterize you? Hey, who, who, what, what's that guy like? What's that gal like? They're shaped by the cross. They look like the atoning work of Jesus playing out in the life of an individual. That's what Paul is calling them towards. And so we've titled this series, Reconciled Living, playing off both the way that the, the, the Paul endeavors to be reconciled to the church, right? the, 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 the horizontal dimensions as well as to be reconciled to the Lord. And so with that, we're going to dive into the passage that we have this morning, uh, which we're looking at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. And Paul launches us into the book of 2 Corinthians, really around this idea right here. Here's the main idea of where God is going to lead us this morning. That God warns affliction will come, but reminds us He is our hope and comfort. Let me say that again. God warns affliction will come, but reminds us He is our hope and comfort. And so with that, let me have you look at the text. Uh, I'm going to read the entirety of the text here at the outset. Uh, And I don't know if uh, all... I might ask you to do this every week. I don't know that that's the case, but I'm going to ask you to stand this week uh, as we honor the reading of God's Word. I would encourage you to follow along while I read this aloud to us. Loved ones, this is the Word of the Lord. It says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother... To the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too." If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of the many. Loved ones, this is the word of the Lord, and it will stand for all of time. Amen? Amen. Amen. Why don't you take your seats, and I'm going to pray for us. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. God, for how you, the, the, the ways that your word is going to do your work uh, in and through uh, the hearts and minds of your people. Father, we pray in these coming moments that we would be yielded and submitted to all that your, God, the, all that your word puts forth. Uh, God, that in the ways that your word is maybe sharp or pointed or, 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 or feels weighty, God, would we receive it with joy and gladness. God, would we be people who are happy to submit and to obey and to follow all that you have put forward within your word. God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. God, this morning praying for First Baptist Church of West Albuquerque, for Pastor Stephen Baum. We pray for those believers. God, that you'd be working and moving in them in the same way that we desire that you would move and work in us. So God, would you have your way now? Would you accomplish your good purposes for your glory? We pray this in your name. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, the title of the message this morning is Comfort in Affliction. Comfort in Affliction. And again, this idea that God warns uh, affliction will come, but reminds us that He is our hope and comfort. And we see this playing out in three distinct ways in the text. So let's begin with this first idea of comfort and affliction that we see in verses 1 and 2. Right? Comfort for the believer comes in this, that we live in the will of God. That we live in the will of God. Now look at your Bibles. Uh, verse 1 and 2, is a, this is a customary and typical greeting of Paul in a variety of his, of his letters. Right? He introduces himself, Paul. He tells us what he does, an apostle of Christ Jesus. But look at this next phrase, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother. See, see not uncommon for Paul even to use this will of God language. And yet there's something particularly striking about 2 Corinthians and some of the particular issues that Paul is going to have to address, that the the will of God and his engagement of that seems to stick out just a little bit. See, what what Paul wants the people in Corinth to understand, he's saying, listen, you have to understand, God has put me in this place. Right, so as the people are looking at Paul, and they're questioning, not necessarily his apostleship, but they're questioning his ministry. They're questioning his effectiveness. They're looking at him, and they see the, the, the suffering and the malignment, and you know he's not nearly as refined as, and polished as some of these others. And yet Paul's saying, no, what you got to understand is that it was the will of God that put me in this place. Right? He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. In Acts 9, when, when, when God called Paul, he says, this man is going to be my chosen instrument right, to carry my name to the Gentiles. Here's what you have to understand. What Paul is telling the people in Corinth is that he is doing this by the will of God. And as I say that, here's what you have to understand for your life and in my life. It is the same will from the same God that puts and places you and I where God has us. Did you hear that? It's the same will and the same God, that God is determining where he wants us to be. So like, like, just think about this for a minute. You're in New Mexico. How many times have you stopped and thought to yourself, why am I in New Mexico? Or some of you might ask that question often. What am I doing here? You're here because God put you here. Think about what you do professionally. You, you might be an, an engineer, or maybe you're a teacher, or maybe you're a homemaker, or maybe you're an accountant. I don't, I don't know, whatever you do. Why do you do that? Because God determined that you're going to do that. And so, you, you don't have to worry about what other people think. You don't have to worry about what other people tell you you should be. It's God's prerogative, not others, for God to put you where he wants you. And so, so what this means is, wherever we find ourselves, we can live with confident joy and contented faith because God has put you where he wants you. Now, for some of you, you're like, that's helpful. Let's move on. Some of you are like, wait, 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 hold on. I didn't ask for this. I, I didn't want the place where God has me. Well, you'd actually be in good company because Paul didn't ask for this either. But right? if you go back to Acts chapter 9, I mean, Paul was confronted, if not accosted, on the road to Damascus. And when Jesus met him in that moment, you know, you know what Jesus never said? Hey, Paul, what would you like the rest of your life to look like? That never came out. He was like, you are going to do this. And the entirety of his life got turned upside down. i didn't to choose this. Won't neither the apostle Paul. And I, I don't know about you, but, but for me, I, I am helped by this because I resonate with this. Pastoral ministry was not the plan. This was not the plan. Now, now I'd be lying to say 20 years ago I had my life figured out, but I knew that this was not supposed to be part of it, that there was going to be another another plan. In fact, I was just talking with a friend this week that for years and years and years, I've told Becky, I, I feel like I'm just far more suited for business than I am for ministry. I, it's just the way I'm wired, the way I'm composed. And if you look at my family, generations of small business owners, my great-grandparents, my grandparents, uh, my, my, my dad had multiple businesses, my mom has multiple businesses, uh, both of my brothers have small businesses. I'm like the black sheep of the family, right? When, when you look at all this stuff that's going on, and yet the question is, why is it that I'm doing what I'm doing? Well, it's simple, because it's God's will for me to do this. In the same way that it's God's will for you to do whatever it is that God has you doing and placing you wherever it is that God is placing you. Paul's saying, I am this by the will of God. You can fight it or you can joyfully live in it. Loved one, will you let the will of God dictate the roles and responsibilities in your life? Paul knows who God made him to be. I wonder, do you know who God made you to be? There is comfort in knowing that we're living in the will of God. Notice then secondly, starting in verse three, the second element of comfort, uh, and it's, it's all around the comfort that we both receive and share from God, that we receive and share God's comfort. So look at what he says, starting in verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. So, so he begins by talking both about God's mercy and God's comfort, but then for the rest of the passage, he's only going to talk about God's comfort. And when you think about God's comfort, it's coming specifically around the suffering and affliction that comes for those who live for Jesus. That, that, that there's allegiance to Jesus, right? That his suffering and affliction that Paul talks about in verses three through six. It's tied to Paul and Timothy. Starting in verse seventeen or seven, it gets applied to the whole of the church. But what he wants us to understand: this is not just garden variety difficulty. That comes with living in a sin-marred world. What's he's, what he's getting at here is that it's causal. There's correlation. That suffering and affliction comes, it's directly related to the fact that we live for Jesus. And there is some irony that Paul has to write this to the Corinthians because they're the very ones who are rejecting his methods and his ways. They're choosing these super apostles because they look at Paul and they see his suffering and they see his affliction and we're like, we don't want that. And so ironically, they're actually contributing to what Paul has to write and helping them to understand that, no, when you follow Jesus, part of that is that there's going to be suffering. Paul is endeavoring to say in this moment, he's saying, listen, what you see in me isn't unique or specific to me. This is true for anyone who would follow Jesus. And so notice a few things about this. First of all, make note of this, that God comforts us in our affliction. That's what we're told in verse three and four. Right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. So notice two things about God's comfort in our affliction. First of all, make note of this, that God comforts us in all affliction. Did you see that in the text? Right? Verse four, who comforts us in some of our affliction? Nope. Who comforts us in most of our affliction? Nope. He comforts us in all of our affliction. There's no suffering. There's no affliction. There's no mistreatment where God's like, sorry, you're on your own for this one. Hope it works out for you. All affliction, God comforts in his people. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Now, now, let me just issue a word of caution here. Don't confuse God's comfort with your preference. Sometimes we want God to comfort us in a particular way. And so when God doesn't comfort us in a particular way, we're like, he's not comforting me. No, the absence of your preference is just that. It's the absence of your preference. It's not the absence of God's comfort. In fact, if we believe the Bible, and we do, you can be confident that when you suffer for your faith and for your allegiance to Jesus, God is going to comfort you in that affliction. So God comforts us in all our affliction. Love that. Okay, here's the other side of this. Uh, Affliction in life is sure. Let me say that again in case you conveniently ignored it when I said it the first time. Affliction in life is sure. See, the desire and the necessity for comfort to come reveals and implies that some aspect of affliction is, is, is a part of our life. In fact, verses 3 through 7, it's strongly implied, and you get to verse 8, and it's, it's explicitly expressed. But see, what Paul's saying here is not inconsistent with what we find in other places in the Bible. In fact, it's entirely consistent with what we find in other places in the Bible. For example, consider what we're told in 1 Peter 4, verse 12, right? Peter, writing to people who are literally exiled for their faith, he says, why are you surprised when a fiery trial comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you? Why are you surprised by this? Why are you acting like this isn't normal? This is exactly what should happen for believers. In fact, when you survey the New Testament, what you find is that the normal biblical expectation for believers is to experience suffering and affliction for their faith. That's what's normative, that's what's typical. Right, Whether it's the way that they're spoken of, or that they're maligned, sometimes it leads to imprisonment, and sometimes even to death. That is the common thread that runs through the New Testament. Here's, here's one of the issues. I said first service, I'm like, here's the issue with the American church. I was like, okay, that's, that's not true. There's plenty of issues uh, with the American church. But here's one of the issues right, that we have to wrestle with, is that when it comes to suffering and affliction for being a believer— our our historical circumstance in our lifetime has unequivocally been the exception, not the norm. What you and I live and what we have experienced as Christians in this country is the exception to what happens the world over more often than not. But here's the problem. The problem is we have failed to understand, okay, our situation is unique. We've started to act like our situation is normative. That's normal. It's typical. It it should never come to anybody. And so here's what happens. As our society is shifting back to the norm, you have people going like, what's happening? Why is this happening? And every time I hear that, I want to be like, have you read the New Testament? That's why this is happening. Like it's exactly like God told us it was going to be. So we shouldn't be surprised. We should be expectant. This summer, Becky and I I had the opportunity to go to this conference in London, and they had ministry leaders that, that came from all over the world. And uh, I, I, found, I found interacting with people in just different parts of the world to maybe be the best part of the conference in totality because it was just really helpful to, to, to give um, perspective on what ministry looks like the world over. So let me give you just a sampling of, of what this looked like because one of the days they did a, a series of brief interviews uh, probably eight, ten different guys and, and ministry in their different settings and their different contexts of what, what, what ministry life uh, was like for them. So here was the first. They, they talked to a guy who uh, was ministering in Germany uh, in a fairly large city. I don't remember exactly which city, but we're not talking about some little village in the middle of nowhere. We're talking a, a, a major city. Uh, and his comment at one point, he said, when I moved to that city, I did not know another evangelical believer in that city, and I was not aware that there even was another evangelical believer in that city. You want to talk about a lonely existence. That is a lonely existence. Or consider this story from a guy doing ministry in Sweden. So, so this, this guy was looking to plant a church in Sweden, and so he was surveying a bunch of people um, who do ministerial work in a broad capacity um, and trying to get an overview of what's going on in the country. And so he began to ask them, Who in Sweden preaches expositionally? And if you're like, what is expositional preaching? It's it's what we do here. It's preaching verse by verse through the Bible. And like, where do I find those guys? And they kept coming back and they would give him a single name. They'd be like, oh, Bjorn does it. I don't know if his name is Bjorn. Just sounds Swedish, so I'm running with it. Okay, but they're like, Bjorn does it. And what he came to realize was that when he surveyed this broad scope of people, there was one person that they were aware of in the entire country that was preaching expositionally. Now, I went to five different churches in Albuquerque this summer where they all preached really solid expositional sermons. It's wildly different than what we experience. But honestly, both of those guys compared or just paled in comparison uh, to this guy from Nepal, a young man who had spent the last couple years in London doing training. He, here was, this is the first question they asked him at the beginning of his interview. They said this, you've had multiple threats on your life, people telling you they're going to kill you if you return So tell us why are you going back? You're like, oh, we're playing for keeps now. And he just said, because my people need the gospel. See, loved ones, that's what's normal. That's the normative experience for believers. That's what's happening the world over. What you and I have lived in has been the exception. So when Paul tells us, hey man, affliction is sure, believe the Bible. Don't be surprised when it comes. Now, praise God that he follows that up with this truth that God is going to comfort us in all our affliction. But this is what it is to follow Jesus. We can't be so short-sighted as to blow this off. And so notice, God gives us some of the reasoning as to why he allows this. Look at the back half of verse 4. You see that phrase, so that? Right? He comforts us in our affliction so that. Here's the reason. Here's the reasoning behind this. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He's like, you know why? God uses our affliction to comfort others. God uses our affliction to comfort others. The the affliction that God allows in your life is going to be used for God's glory to comfort someone else. Bottom line, your affliction is redemptive. Do you hear that? It is redemptive. It is not wasted. It is not lost. And it's redemptive because God is going to use it to bring comfort to others. That's what the Bible's telling us. And so in the way that God comforted you and I in our affliction, he is going to comfort them through us. As you, you think about that, let me just ask you this question. When you think about how you presently view suffering and affliction in your life, how does this biblical truth begin to reshape how you think about the affliction in your life? Because it should, right? I mean, this should absolutely reshape how we're thinking about this. And if nothing else, if nothing else, we're reminded our affliction and our suffering is not wasted. It's going to be redemptive. It's going to be used by God to comfort our brothers and our sisters around us. And you might say, well, how can this be? And Paul's like, I'm glad you asked, because that's what I wrote about in verses 5, 6, and 7. When we see this, that we share in Christ for others' well-being. We share in Christ for others' well-being. Now look at verse 5. He says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So he's like, first of all, we share abundantly in Christ. And, and he starts with something probably none of us were like, yes! Right? None of us read the first part of verse 5 when he's like, we're going to share abundantly in Christ's suffering. No one's like, I was hoping he'd say that. Right? Most of us are like, does it have to be abundant? Like, can it be moderate? Is there a mild option? Is that the only choice? But no, no, you you actually want the abundance because look at what he goes on to say. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. It's like, no, it's in the abundance of the suffering that we experience the abundance of the comfort. Now, this in Christ motif that that is introduced here is going to run throughout the entirety of um, 2 Corinthians. It's a major purpose of the letter, and it's reminding us that part of living in Christ is to share in the sufferings of Christ. Let me give you 1 Peter 4.13. I read verse 12 or 4.12 just a moment ago. Here's verse 13. Next verse, Peter says, Rejoice as you share in Christ's sufferings, so you may also rejoice when His glory is revealed. He's like, to share in Christ includes to share in His Suffering. And so notice then how it gets fleshed out in verse 6. He says this, If we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And you're like, what? Look at what it goes on to say. And if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Now, the back half of the verse, you're like, oh, I get that. Like, if I'm comforted, you're comforted. But, but you might read the front half of that verse and be a little bit disturbed. You're like, wait, wait, if I'm afflicted, you're comforted? Like that, that, what is going on? Like what is he, is this like some hunger game style scenario where God picks someone to suffer and as long as it's not me, I'm comforted because it's not me? No, no, that's, that's not what he's talking about here. Okay, so what is it that he's getting at? It's that our suffering and our affliction has the ability to produce good for others. You are know, like, okay, how, here's how. Love one, when you see God at work in others, it is a reminder and a proof to you that God is going to work in your suffering and your affliction as well. L- let me be more direct here. How does sharing in, God, in Christ's suffering produce well-being for others? Let me give you three ways that we see this playing out. First of all this, we're reminded that God is at work. We're reminded that God is at work. See, see sometimes we have to see it in others before we can recognize the work that God is doing in us. Sometimes you watch a family navigate some difficult item, right? Maybe it's financial hardship, maybe it's a health crisis, maybe it's death, maybe it's some kind of conflict or strife and you watch them navigate that by trust and faith and dependence in God and then you realize, oh, I'm helped in that. Sometimes you gotta see it in others before you can recognize what's going on in your own life. We're reminded God's at work. Secondly, we're encouraged to press on. See, when you see it in others or when others see it in you, the endurance and the perseverance that they demonstrate encourages us to keep going. So Becky and I left that conference in London, and we were resolved, like, no, we want to keep going. Because we we saw these brothers and sisters that were laboring in such difficulty, and yet they're like, no, it's, it's worth it. And that Nepali guy finished, I was ready to run through a brick wall. I'll do just about anything at that point. But we're encouraged to press on. And thirdly, Our trust in the Lord is deepened. Our trust in the Lord is deepened. Now now this right here, loved ones, this is the, the benefit of longevity in Jesus. Where every situation, every instance, every trial, every hardship, every difficulty that God ultimately comes through only serves to build a stronger, sturdier, deeper faith. And sometimes... It's the situations in your life that you deposit into the bank, if you will. And sometimes it's seeing what God is doing in other people that serve as deposits into the bank. And so here's what you have to understand. Your suffering, your suffering may be sovereignly used by God to remind or to encourage or to deepen trust in the Lord for someone else. And if you're like, what about me? you can praise God that your suffering is redemptive and it's not wasted. One other note that I think is worth sharing in this moment, um, this is somewhat ancillary, so I guess technically it's free and you get what you pay for, so you do what you want with this. But what we just talked about, this is why as people we must learn to celebrate, not to envy God's provision and work in others. See, loved ones, when when God's provision and his work and his care in others, it's meant to be a reminder and an encouragement to us that God is also going to see us through. And so when I look at a fellow brother and sister, and I don't celebrate what God is doing in them, I'm envious or I'm jealous of what God is doing in them. It actually robs me of what God intends to do in that moment. We share in Christ. Brother's well-being. Paul shifts here, starting in verse 7. And here, this is kind of the hinge, if you will, because it's no longer just him and Timothy. It's no longer tied to him. This is now where it begins to apply to the whole of the church, to you and I. He says this, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you'll also share in our comfort. He's like, so I'm unshaken. By the suffering that's going to come your way. And yet, how often does the exact opposite happen in our lives? Right? We've probably all had this experience, whether, whether we've seen it in someone else or maybe it's even happened to us, that the moment something difficult happens, our hope in God is shaken. And yet, Paul's saying, no, no, it should be unshaken. We're, we're unshaken in our hope for you. Why? Because l- look at the train of thought here in verse 7. Suffering is not the destination. What's the destination? The destination is we share in the comfort of Christ. So he's like, listen, the, the, the suffering, is, that's, that's just a pathway. The destination is that, is that we get to live and flourish in the comfort of Jesus. And when you realize that, this, this passage has almost a Philippians 121 feel to it. Right? Remember Philippians 121, to live is Christ, to die is gain? Win-win, right? Like if I live Christ, if I die, gain. Like I'm winning either way. This passage has a very similar feel. Because he's saying, okay, on the one hand... If you suffer, you're led to Christ's comfort. In the end, that's a win. On the other hand, if you don't suffer, you don't suffer. And that's a win, right? So like either way, either way, it's to our benefit. And so as we consider all these things, it's, it's worth asking in our own lives, how do you presently view suffering and affliction? you see it as a nuisance? Do you see it as pointless? Or is this passage helping you to reshape and to redeem it for what it actually is, that there is a redemptive element to our suffering? And maybe we need to be, be reminded of that. Secondly, we have to ask ourselves: when it comes to our suffering and our affliction, am I trusting God to bring his comfort at his ordained time? Or am I searching for comfort in other things? Am I attempting to find in someone or something else what can only come to me from the Lord? And then given our context here in the West, I I think we have to ask ourselves this question. Have you wrongly believed that you are immune or exempt from suffering? That we share in Christ. And part of our sharing in Christ, among other things, is to share in His suffering. And in sharing in His suffering, we share in His comfort. And that should be a great source of comfort for all of us. Which leads then, Paul, to this final thought in verses 8 through 11, which in some respects is quite similar to verses 3 through 7, but he just gets more explicit and pointed. And so here's this final source of comfort and affliction, and it's this, that we're warned of affliction. When you're like, that, what's the comfort in that? Well, it's because we're promised God's hope. See, what has been implied in verses 3 through 7 is now explicitly stated in verses 8 through 10, where it, where it was tied to Paul and Timothy in verses 3 through 6. It's now applied to, the, to believers into the church in verses 7 through 10. Look at your Bibles. I'm going to read verses 8 through 10. It says this. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Three things. Three things to note here. Here's the first. Affliction drives us to dependence upon God. Affliction drives you to dependency upon the Lord. Now, now, now Paul is recounting right, a, a, a historical event in his life we don't know specific, what specifically he has in mind, this affliction in Asia. There would have been plenty of options to choose from. But the point being that this is, it's not theoretical. This is not abstract. It's real. It, it happened. And it was hard. In fact, it was so hard. Look at what he says. We despaired of life. We thought we had received the sentence of death. D- do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, we thought we were going to die, and we would have been okay if we died. I get, that would have been fine by us. But they didn't. Why? That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, the affliction drove us to God. Right? The, the, the very God who has the power to raise the dead. See, the affliction drove them to the only one that could truly remedy what they needed in their life. Spurgeon, the great British preacher, Um, he's got a lot of great quotes, but probably my all-time favorite quote from Spurgeon. You've all heard me say it before, but it fits here, where he says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me upon the rock of ages. It's like, man, I've, I've learned to embrace, and I've learned to love what throws me onto Jesus, even though it is often painful in the present moment. And here's what you have to understand. God will, if necessary, force us back to himself. Because, loved ones, that is what is best for us. And so just ask yourself. You Think about, okay, affliction and and God's intent to drive us back to himself. What what is it that God might be teaching you in your present struggle? Does God want to put your self-sufficiency to death? Does God need to remind you that this world is empty? Does God need to remind you that Jesus is enough? Affliction drives us to dependence. So listen, listen, listen. If God uses affliction to give us what we most need, which is him, we should not begrudge the means by which it comes through, but we should praise God that he so kindly pushes us back to himself. That's how we have to think about affliction, because that's what the Bible is telling us how we're to think about the affliction in our lives. Affliction drives us to dependence upon God. And then notice in verse 10, we see this, that we place our hope in Christ, that we're to place our hope in Christ. Now verse 10, he, Christ, delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. Right, we place our hope in Christ. Now now Paul here is speaking about deliverance. And the question you have to wrestle with is, is it a physical deliverance or is it a spiritual deliverance? What do you think? The answer is yes. Who said yes? Yes. That is absolutely the answer. Right? The answer is yes. It's both. Because the physical gives us insight and understanding to the spiritual. And Jesus did this all the time. That physical bread that would sustain you for a few hours denoted the bread of life that would sustain you for eternity. Right? The water that would quench your thirst for a moment pointed to the living water that would quench your soul for all of eternity. The physical healing from some malady or sickness meant to point us to, to the spiritual healing that would be accomplished by Christ in the cross. Right? God's physical deliverance has always intended to point us to the greater spiritual deliverance. So let me ask you this question. Just in your own life, in your head, think about this for a moment. How has God delivered you? What are the different ways that God has delivered you? And you might think of physical examples. You might think of financial examples. You might think of uh, different ways that he's restored relationships. Um, I, I was just th- I was thinking about this. Becky and I just last week, we're on paradise, and we're driving down the hill, and literally right in front of us, three-car accident, one of the cars ended up upside down. Spared, right? Like, like, oh, we were physically spared from any harm in that moment. But when you start thinking about deliverance, In a physical sense, inevitably you're going to end up in a place where where you're, you're thinking about and reminded of the atoning death of Jesus in your place. It's going to press you there. But it's not just past tense deliverance Paul talks about. Notice also, he talks about that he will deliver us. On him we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. There's a future deliverance. So let me ask you again, how will God deliver you? Now, in the temporal sense, that's harder for us to discern and to figure out. But not in the spiritual sense. Jesus is going to return in power. He's going to conquer sin and death. He's going to reign as king forever. That's how he's going to deliver us. See, this is the hope of the gospel. Any physical, temporal rescue of God is always intended to point us, loved ones, to the ultimate rescue of God, which is what God accomplished through Christ on the cross. Because when you and I defied and rebelled against God, when we sinned against God, what we deserve in our sin is God's just judgment and wrath. We should be consumed immediately for our defiance and rebellion against God. But God doesn't. Why? Because God instead sent his son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, the perfect life you and I could not live, so that Christ would go to the cross, die in our place as a a substitute to atone for our sin, And in the process, places his righteousness upon us so that we are now invited into the family of God. And that God looks at us and he calls us sons and daughters, not defiant rebels that we actually are. Praise God for this. This is the deliverance he's speaking of. But in as much as we want to talk about deliverance, we we actually have to talk about the focal point of verse 10. Because deliverance is actually ancillary to the focal point. Do you notice the focal point? Look at your Bibles. It's not deliverance. Who is it? It's him. Do You see that? It's him. On him, we have set our hope. See, deliverance is the result of what comes through him, and we are infinitely grateful for that. But our hope is actually in Christ. Deliverance is the result of trusting in Christ. But the core of our hope, what is central to our hope, is Jesus. And here's why it's important that we make this distinction because it's subtle and yet profound. If you make Jesus, right? If Jesus is no longer the source of your hope, which by the way can never be lost, but he simply becomes the means of our hope, then we're actually using and exploiting Jesus to get what we want while simultaneously rejecting the greatest treasure that is offered and afforded to us. And so as you think about this, just consider what's what's in your life, what's in your heart? Let me ask it this way, what's the goal of your life? Is it to obtain Jesus? Or someone or something else? What's the purpose of your life? What's your hope rooted in? Right? Is it to obtain Jesus? Or someone or something else? What is the treasure? that you, you, you most desire to preserve in your life? Is it Jesus or is it someone else? And as you examine that, you might realize, I'm actually not hoping in Christ, I'm just using him. We place our hope in Christ. And then finally this, look at verse 11. It says, you, must also, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on behalf of the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. We share by praying for one another. We share by praying for one another. Now, in verse 5, Paul talked about how he's sharing in Christ. Um, and here now, he's telling the church, here's one of the ways that you share in Christ pray for us. Pray for us. Love us. Don't ever believe, don't ever believe that prayer is somehow uh, some kind of inferior means of help. Nothing could be further from the truth. Paul's saying, man, if you want to serve, serve in this way, pray for us. Are you willing to share by being diligent and devoted in prayer? And as you think about prayer, loved ones, don't ever overestimate your own power and don't ever underestimate the necessity of our dependence upon the Lord. Because that's really what's at the center of this letter. Paul is inviting the Corinthians as he invites us to dependence upon Jesus. God warns affliction will come, but he reminds us that he is our hope and our comfort. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you. God, for your great grace and your great kindness toward us. Father, we are thankful for the comfort, for the hope that are ours in Jesus. Father, we're thankful for all that you grant and give to us. God, we pray. We pray for clarity of mind around what it is to live in this world. God, we pray for clarity of mind to understand that affliction is coming that that is a part of what it is to follow you. But God, we can endure that. We can, we, we can deal with that because your comfort awaits us. And so, Father, would you give us just healthy perspective to see this for what it is, to be men and women who love you, who put our hope in you, not, not through you, but in you. We pray this in your name.